last song there. It's called The Cure for Pain. Which is taken from a Rooney poem. Rooney's my favorite poem. I took a lot of lyrics from Rooney. In the early days, I didn't cite Rooney, which is technically considered plagiarism in the academic world, but we weren't in the academic world. So I don't know if we violate any principle, but I'd like to retroactively give Rooney credit for all the beautiful lines that I stole from Rooney. Thank you, Rooney. All right, I'll go. The cure for pain is in the pain. So it's there that you'll find me. Until again I forget. And again he reminds me. Hear my voice in your head and think of me kindly. And with that, we enter in. Interesting that God is asking him to think of God kindly. Yeah. That's not a, t- that's, <laughs> that's the first thing that jumps out to me about this. Yep. That's a weird thing for God to say. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I appreciate sort of the conceit of this song that sometimes pain doesn't have, there's no answer. Right, other than to... To go through it. Sit in it for a while. Yeah, you have to go through it. Yeah. Which is something that we've talked about in earlier episodes. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and this... Overall, this is... This is such an interesting track. It's such an interesting... Just given everything that we've talked about, (laughs) the way that this ends, that the record ends, not the narrative, right? Thinking about how it leads into... Well, I'm not sure how we're going to include the secret track yet. I'm curious to hear everybody's (laughs) thoughts on that. If we think of that as like some kind of appendix, right, in some way, but not part of the actual narrative, you know, in which case... This track leads into bullet to binary, or yeah. you know, well, we'll we'll get there, but yeah, um, but yeah, there's such a mixture here of uh, of depression still, mm-hmm. um, you know, he whatever his other plan is, it's not working yet, or or it hasn't been executed yet, or I, I'm not sure, but there is some some inkling of it, right? There's some sparkle. Right. Sure. I I guess of it kind of breaking through, you know, particularly in the last stanza. But yeah, this idea of just having to go through the pain and being reminded that you can because for him, because God is there. And yeah, yeah. I wanted to start with this because as we talked about in the previous episode, that feels like such a culmination of the musical and, and lyrical themes. And then we get this sparsely starting plotting. Uh, plotting feels like an adequate term for like the, the pacing of this. It's drudging. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a drudge. It's drudgery. <laughs> There's a funeral dirge quality to yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like 
oh my gosh, it is, you know, I, I say this about some of my favorite metal music too. It's like what I imagine the dinosaurs in Fantasia right. yeah. died to <laughs> getting stuck, <laughs> yeah. getting stuck in uh-huh. the, the, the sludge in the, in the tar pits, you know, like it's, it, there's this thing dying, but then you see where it goes at the other end of it too. And yeah, so right. I just wanted to start with those lyrics because Stephen, I know you have things to say and I, I, I do too. <laughs> I'm sure Joel does too mm-hmm. about the opening notes, but um, what a way to end an album. Yeah. There's this space, there's this moment of silence and then you hear those little do 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 and then this plodding, drudging yeah. sadness. So yeah, take us away with the music. So the opening gesture is that sound, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to read this in the same way as we did the last track, yeah, uh, we're at the beginning of Silencer. This gesture is this sort of like sad sounding but thoughtful question asking if if the ethical life and whatever sadness comes with it is all that's possible or, or maybe the aesthetic life and some sort of happiness is still possible. The way that the, the the notes fall for this gesture at the beginning of The Cure for Pain is interesting in two ways. One, it's a completely jarring harmonic shift from the end of Silencer. Silencer ends mm. in, in B minor as it begins. It stays there the whole time. What this begins with are a set of... There's four pitches in, in this, and three out of the four are not in the key of B minor, at least not B natural minor that we had before. And I know that just sounds like a bunch of theory jargon, but let me just play this for you. So here's a B minor chord. Has those notes in it. Now, while I hold that in in my left hand, I'm going to play this opening riff in my right hand, and it should sound very jarring and dissonant because the pitches don't match up at all. So here's a B minor chord with the other riff on top. Like the the notes don't fit. They're they're mm-hmm. they're from a different sonic space, and that sonic space is B flat. This is the key that has been introduced at various points to try to broker a deal between A and B to find some middle mm-hmm. way forward yeah. that mm-hmm. that allows elements of both mm-hmm. into the future ahead. And and then so so it's in B flat. That's the interesting strange place for this to to begin the ending of the album. (laughs) But even this gesture has this kind of questioning quality to Mm -hmm. it, right? I mean, that phrase sounds like asking a question. And in a very similar fashion to to the one in Silencer. Right. That sounds like coming to a conclusion and feeling satisfied with the answer that you just gave yourself. Or you maybe you ask somebody else and they responded. In any case, mm-hmm. it's asking a question almost like, oh, but wait, is this is this compromise between A and B possible? Is this compromise between the aesthetic and the ethical possible? And and this opening gesture seems to answer that affirmatively. 
Can, can I, I just have it both ways? I love where this is going. I'm so excited yeah. right now. Yeah. I love where this is going. Yeah, yeah, I can have it both ways. <laughs> yeah. And then this, this is the response that you get. Yeah. <laughs> to his own self-satisfied answer. Yep. Which is a big, chunky D minor chord. <laughs> and I will remind you yes. again, d- d- dear listener, that D minor is the sound of Don Giovanni being dragged into hell. Yep. Um, right. Yeah. Backing up again, we've had this scheme the whole time through. Maybe completely unfounded that the A and the B <laughs> in the title of this album and the two tracks on this album and the repeated gestures emphasizing the notes A and B in this album, in fact, has something to do with Soren Kierkegaard's Either Or, A Fragment of Life, this book that presents a character called A and a character called B, and the ethical and the aesthetic. That's been the conversation the whole time. Mm-hmm. But within that book, there's, I, I would say, a, an, uh, sort of self-indulgently incredibly long chapter called The Immediate Stages of the Erotic, which, uh, whatever else it is, is a love fest for Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and specifically his opera, <laughs> Don Giovanni. Right. And this D minor is this very heavy sound. In, in Mozart, it's surprising, actually. Um, among Mozart's output, the overture to Don Giovanni that comes back again in this, this concluding scene where he basically gets what's coming to him for being a womanizer and and finally judgment day comes for him he refuses to repent and the sound of him receiving divine judgment is this huge d minor chord so whatever sort of self-talk is implied by this little like flimsy guitar riff at the beginning of the song which is quiet it's spacious it doesn't sound confident it sounds like you're trying to to pep talk yourself a little bit. And mm-hmm. it also sounds very raw and, and naked. We have the whole band come in with the tambourine and like and this like very confident rising gesture at the end of Silencer. Mm-hmm. And for that to be stripped away, it's almost like the pretending to be strong, the kind of like face of confidence that the narrator is putting on at the end of the last track disappears and we get the actual sort of real self presented for a moment, asking a question about whether he can have it both ways. Yeah. And 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 this is the the answer of divine justice. This <laughs> giant chunky D minor that, that just hammers us through most of this song. That point you were making just at the end the the raw the real self yeah. helps answer why we get this after the such obvious musical and lyrical conclusion to the narrative. It feels like a nice bow on top yeah. End silencer. And then we get this. Yeah. With all of its complexity with where this song goes. And then the fact that we have approximately five minutes and 10 seconds of utter silence uh, in between this and the <laughs> yeah. alternate track. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Seeing the sheet pulled off, you know, the, the wool that was over our eyes is pulled completely away. And we're seeing this person just sitting with raw emotion. Yeah. Wow. So I want to go back to, Joel, your point about what an odd thing it is to 
hear God say, hear my voice in your head and think of me kindly. <laughs> because it, it, it plays into something that was one of the first things a, a, a person of Christian persuasion said to me that made me kind of like get it, which is that we are already in heaven and in hell. And like that God is within all of us and God isn't a being external from us. There is that energy connecting all things and the whole universe is God. And so it's almost the self like it's okay. Hmm. Like the the God within you, the the being within the the part of God that is within you, not not that you are God, I should say, is saying, hear my voice in your head and think of me kindly like. You've been beating yourself up this whole album. You've also been beating up your ex-girlfriend, um, yeah, <laughs> uh, conceptually, not literally. But be kinder to yourself. There's there's a lot of angst and a lot of um, unkind ways of thinking about yourself throughout this whole piece. So uh, I almost read that line as that, like it's self-referential. Hmm. What do y'all think of that? Well, I <laughs> let me think here. Well, you're thinking. Let me say something just br- brief and simple for for anyone out there who who identifies as a Christian. I'm sure you and any other person listening to this podcast probably have a range of ways of thinking about how a line like this is even possible. Right. For sure. Yeah. Does Does God speak to us? Assume Assume like straightforward Christian orthodoxy, and that. We have this book called the Bible, which presumes that God speaks. We have him speaking from like the first pages on through all the way. Mm-hmm. The question does does that still happen? Is that and you know, Joel, you wrote an entire dissertation on mysticism. So you know, like there's plenty of people in history after the closing of the canon that have believed that God communicates pretty directly with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think that and we're not going to resolve exactly what what Aaron's perspective is. Certainly, but not. I think you can you can hang your hat a little bit on the overlap there, that there's some sort of mysterious overlap between God and the self when we get to the, the last verse of this song. Yeah. And we'll, I'll let that happen when we get there. But I think it's, I think it's an interesting reading. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm going with the two bells on the camel to tie back to where we went in bullet to binary. Like, mm, uh, yeah, your, your true relationship with God is this, it's this, I, well, and you can't see my hands doing it, but, but Joel and Stephen can, which is I'm, I'm in I'm knitting my fingers together because yeah. mm-hmm. if you're truly having the, the kind of relationship with God that you're meant to, at least in yeah. Rumi's reading, you are one and the same. Yeah. You are not separate ever. So Nick, I think, I think the reading sounds right to me, like okay. that interpretation of the self and God sort of coming together and, and bringing rooming into this makes sense, not only for the end, but also because the very next lines are, let me be, let me be, which I understand is a kind of like protest against this idea of, of the divine and the self sort of becoming one, right? And obviously it's a direct parallel to let us die, let us die. And it's the, yeah. it's the opposite of that, right? Not let us die, but no, let me be, leave me alone, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And then the second verse gets, uh, I think, pretty dark until Definitely. until the very end, and then something clicks. But before we jump into that, Stephen, tell us more about the music. Yeah, so 
the way that I feel like this last line in quotes, hear my voice in your head and think of me kindly, makes a strange kind of sense spoken from the mouth of God against the music that we hear here. And, mm. and, and I'm going to presume for a moment a shade of, of difference that, that this is somehow like a, a clearly demarcated divine other. This is not some component of his personality or it's not some sort of divine union that he's experiencing. Yeah. But just, let's, just, let's just treat it for a moment like, like God as a, as a separate being is, is speaking to him, saying, hear my voice in your head and think of me kindly. If the music underneath it is this big, thick D minor which has some some kind of implication of divine judgment because the kind of womanizing behavior that Don Giovanni undergoes brings about this flaming retribution at the end of, of this opera that, that Kierkegaard talks about. If that's the stage that's set, is that this is what God's response to, say, sexual sin is, is that you, you know, are pulled down into the flames then it makes a kind of sense as a as a corrective if that's his mindset if if what we're experiencing in in this drudgy trudgy <laughs> dark d minor music is his mental state his impression of what is coming to him it, you know if we peel back the curtain of his like confidence from the end of the last song about her happy future in god's presence and now he's really reflecting on himself he may be feeling this load of guilt and shame, and that's what's represented in the D minor here. Then if God as an actual other speaks to him and says, think of me kindly, mm. it's a gentle corrective to his impression of what God is like to want to drag him down into the flames because of this whole experience. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. I like that too, a lot. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Hmm. But his response is still to just start screaming, let me be. Like, keep, <laughs> yeah. leave me alone. Like, like whatever voices in my head that just said that, like, I, no, like, I don't, I don't want to think of you kindly. Like, just, just leave me alone. <laughs> yep. Well, and so that's kind of the, back to Joel, what you were kind of saying about the, the let me be, let me be almost validating the it's it's the internal the the divine from within um i just want to be left alone i just want to like i want to sit and wallow i i want right. i i want i want to be where i'm at right and that's and exactly not... what he does in mm-hmm. in the verse right then he goes back mm-hmm. to you know lower down like a casket and bury <laughs> just below her chest i mean god like <laughs> That's doesn't get more, uh, you know, emo than that. That's right? it. Um, no, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and then and then again, also recalling some words that and, and Steve and I thinking back to the last episode, I think that it, it is really important to remember that this is the narrator's recollection of something. He's yeah. putting words into her mouth. And so this may not even have been something that she said. I mean, we know that anxiety and depression remake reality, right? They, they when, when you remember these kinds of things, you remember them in such a way that it's like the most painful yeah. possible way, right? So yeah. he's remembering her saying this really cutting, painful thing. Whatever right. I was searching yeah, right. for, it was never you. 
But he's also in he's in this sort of like macabre, very romantic 19th century fantasy world that also <laughs> overlaps with like sort of early aughts emo language yeah. <laughs> all at the same time. He's already in a fantastic state. Yeah. And the line is, whatever I was searching for, it was never you. She says it's in the present tense. It's not she said. Mm. So he's mm-hmm. set up this little tiny play in which he is now being like buried in into her heart or something. Mm-hmm. And then now it's almost like this, like you can imagine this sort of stilted, overly dramatic line of this woman in a, in a shabby, you know, lace dress proclaiming whatever I was searching for. It was never you. Like he's, she's like part yeah. of the funeral scene it now. It was never you. Well, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah, which is different than the the she said line in the last song, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. which is presented as if it was a real quote. Have you all ever seen the 1995 Robin Williams film What Dreams May Come? Mm-hmm. Okay, I have not. Uh, well, it's an it's, Orpheus story. Yeah. We've talked about that too. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and there's yeah. there's a kind of a parallel, right? Like the so the whole premise is that. Robin Williams dies, well, his kids die, then he dies, and his wife is left, and she ends up committing suicide, and because she commits suicide, she, essentially, she goes to hell, and he Mm -hmm. is, the, you know, the, the plot of the movie is he's going to rescue her, but when he finds her, right, it's sort of a very similar, like, it's a very macabre, like, she's in this little cottage in the, I mean, it's a striking the film is the whole film is striking visually. I mean, especially for a mid '90s movie. I mean, it's crazy. But she's living in this little cottage that's like in an upside down church. Like that's the mm. it's like this enormous upside down church, and this cottage is like at the ceiling. And but she is in this place, like very very similar. I feel like to what's happening here, and sort of what you described, Stephen, where she cannot be shaken out of this and and the the punishment right is that she has to relive essentially like the deaths of the people she loved the most oh my gosh over and over again like she can't and she doesn't recognize robin williams when he shows up and he's trying to like pull her out of this despair anyway all of that i i think to say that this yeah this rings very very similar to that kind of idea yeah wow Correct me if I'm wrong. We haven't actually read verse two in its entirety yet. If if someone wants to do that, this is a good time because the last line is gonna is gonna do a lot of work for us. Yeah, thematically for for our treatment of this album. So here, why don't you go ahead and read it, Nick? Yeah. Okay. Let me be. Let me be lowered down like a casket and buried just below her chest. Whatever I was searching for, it was never you, she says. The record ended long ago. We go on dancing nonetheless. I opened like a locket. If you're ever cold, I wrote, there's a warmth inside me. I'm the pocket of an old winter coat. But where she used to say, I need you. Now, I don't. And um. Amazing moment. So there's so much there in that second half. Yeah. 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 And that that moment at the end is, I mean, it's a uh, 
chill-inducing, yeah. shiver-inducing moment on the record. It's yeah. just, yeah, incredible. Incredible turn right there. Yeah. Well, so are we seeing a little bit of uh, metaphysical conceit going on here, would you say? Yes, for sure. Yeah, I mean, in here and in the next verse, to the mm-hmm. final verse, you know, yeah. Uh, an amazing enduring image from from all the whole catalog right Uh, but yeah i opened like a locket and this idea of you know i'm the pocket of an old winter coat Um, that always gives me such a smile because did you ever like visiting well joel you grew up in a warm climate (laughs) but uh visiting grandparents who lived you know i'm from the midwest and so visiting my grandparents they would have coats that were like my aunts and uncles and my mom's Carhartt or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's that are like 50 years old and they're still in really good shape. And you just put your hands in and they have that felt lining that's mm, like yeah. so warm despite and being kind of bristly. Yeah. Or soft. Yeah. yeah. And um it so I've always loved that line because of that, wow, they just don't make it like they used to. Like it is a warm spot, a warm place, this uh this old coat. Yeah. And if you're lucky, there's nobody's used Kleenex in that pocket. <laughs> oh, there are those. But when you're 12, you don't care. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you bring up the idea of metaphysical conceit because um, he goes from a what is a I think a pretty standard metaphor. Yep. The record ended long ago. We go on dancing nonetheless. I think that that everybody understands to be like the their relationship, right? And they, you know, mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. they continued past the time when the music had stopped for them, which was a mistake. But then right into something that is definitely an example of metaphysical conceit where you have a metaphor that is unusual, that is not something that you would normally think of and yet it it works and then another one right after it and then another one right after that right opening like a locket yeah you open a lot of things yeah sure a locket that one seems to make some sense to me but there's again here comes that intimacy again right like yeah what is a locket if not a memento the object itself and then whatever you place inside of it, whether it's a picture yeah. or an engraving or whatever it is. Um, Somebody's fingernails. So, oh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so Sorry, creepy, I didn't mean to yes. derail that train of thought. I was just thinking, like, actually, I was thinking of a strand of hair. Like, that's, no, no, that's maybe right. a, little, exactly. a little more yeah. typical. But like, <laughs> you know, um, exactly right. No, it's, you know, <laughs> I think a fingernail actually makes more sense with the creepiness of the narrator yeah. uh, than a I, lock of hair. I I I just need to say something here before we get into this string of of compelling images. The record ended long ago, so we go on dancing nonetheless. Okay, for one, put music to our trouble. Mm-hmm. We'll dance them away. Yeah, it's a callback to the ghost. Yeah, this for me was the line that sealed the deal as I started to contemplate whether this whole album was in some sort of inverted sequence. Is that this is the one like wink to the audience that. Oh, by the way, you're not listening to this the right way. Yep. The record ended long ago. <laughs> like at the end of track four, guys, like that was yeah, the end. Like wow. This is not the end right here. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but even we also get what we were just talking about in the previous episode. Uh, Silencer feels like the end. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like the mm-hmm. natural conclusion mm-hmm. in a lot yeah. of ways, musically yeah. anyway. And yet here we are continuing on. 
It, yeah. Everything feels like a weird continuation. And we've gotten that this entire record. Yeah. Here's a, a, a taste of where we'll go in our in our wrap up episode is all of the realizations of the learning how to move how to shift from A to B. Mm-hmm. Oh, but I'm falling back into it. Oh, yeah. now I'm in B flat trying to get yeah. to have it both ways. Yeah. And yet here we are. So, yeah, that's really I, I love that reading of, of the record line. And then it's, you know, what is happening then from the point from the moment of I open like a locket, you have this uh, the music shifts and you have this building toward a climax. I mean, it's very obvious in Aaron's yep. delivery and in the music. It's building, 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 building. Right. Um, and it's. I just I just really want to pull apart mm-hmm. these lines. Yeah, let's do it. Because I so on the on so one reading I think is just that he is the, he is continuing to dance right in writing this note. If you're ever cold, there's a warmth inside me. I'm the pocket of an old winter coat. Like he's still trying to keep it going, whatever it is, right? Whatever. Yeah. You know, whatever they had, whatever the relationship was, he's he's trying to keep it going. And so he opens like a locket and writes this, meaning mm-hmm. I, I read that as he's he's opening up this very vulnerable part of him. Right. Offering this to her and her response is to say, I don't need you. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that that's delivered Right. But where she used to say, I need you now, and he holds that now out and then cut. I, I don't. don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's this moment of realization, I think. That's the turn. Mm. For me, anyway, I, I think. And I mean, obviously, he, he continues. There is no ever any kind of definitive moment. I mean, that's the the record is is circularity in so many yeah. ways right it never it the narrative just keeps spinning on it turning on itself turning on itself yeah um spinning 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 like you know we mentioned yeah way yeah. back at the beginning in the second episode you know the the image of the whirling dervish exactly but there definitely is some kind of turn here And that that circular nature of the whole experience of listening to this is is ironic set over and against the formulaically linear title of the album. A to B life. A yeah. to B life. Yeah. It's a straight yeah. line with a start point and an end point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of like self-consciously ironic, you know, in a, in a way. I don't know. I would have to guess so. Not not, not to interrupt you, but uh, yeah. Especially early on, the, the tongue-in-cheekness of yeah. the name of the band. Yep. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, their whole personas. And again, thinking even, it's, I think Mike said, in a, maybe in the Ask Me Anything, that the title A to B Life came, it was like a painting they saw in a gallery in Philadelphia, you know, and I don't know what point that was, if it was after they'd already written these songs or, mm. or they just, whatever. I can't know more than that. But the delivery of that line, I don't. I just want to point out, not only is it incredibly powerful, it's balanced against, I think, only one other line on the album that sounds like that, which is the line, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. Hmm. 
for all that we make of this this genre being kind of a spoken word type of vocal delivery that he's not yeah. like sometimes he's screaming he he basically never sings other than sort of as a background to to one track on here we talk about it being spoken word but all of it feels very performative except everything is beautiful and nothing hurt and then these words i don't sounds like a regular human speaking voice that doesn't have anything to prove yeah and the only other line i would throw in there maybe as you is and you'd better, better be, be alone. alone. But even that is performative. It's just yeah. he's the only sound going on at that yeah. moment. Yep. That's yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. That's a really good point, Stephen. I yeah. I I don't. It. He says it. He performs it the way she probably would have said it. Yeah. And I mean, and this unreliable narrator that we have. Yeah. That feels like a reliable. Like that happened. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Whatever layers there are. Yeah. It's like the first, maybe not the first, but but definitely one of the few really truthful moments. Yep. Yep. Um, where and and you really, really feel that, like with the delivery and the music and everything, it it just it drives that home so like you feel that in your body. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The the truth of this. Yeah. Like you can't even talk about it as being like the narrator of the album anymore. Like this is just Aaron Weiss in the studio in front of a microphone saying the words I don't feeling the full weight of them yeah yep so we hit we've kind of unpacked the images but where she used to say I need you now I don't is such an incredible like everyone has that kind of image either from a breakup or just all right there's this thing that used to fit into this paradigm and the paradigm shifted. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joel, to your point, like that is the pivot point of the song mm-hmm. narratively and, and the album in a sense, you know, he, Oh, mm-hmm. now I get it. Now this, this really is to, that's not the period, but it's the period for her. Like I know I've lost her forever now. Yeah. And it's interesting to, to kind of juxtapose that further with what Stephen, what you were saying about the er- earlier in this verse, right? This kind of melodrama, mm-hmm. right? This imagining being lowered, like as if there's a kind of play being put on, right? And the whatever <laughs> I was searching for, it was never you, right? I mean, because that that line, right, is essentially saying something similar, right? To the I used to need you, now I don't, right? I mean, right. The 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 sentiment is very similar, and yet that first. Yeah. Delivery, right? We're sort of recognizing as, you know, we're reading it as perhaps this very melodramatic, theatrical, not real, right? It's yeah. it's false in some way. Yeah. Um, and even even his note that he writes where he opens like a, a locket, like there is something that's that's a bit over the top. Oh, sure. About that, right? It is a beautiful image, but it is also yeah. over the top. Like again, uh, you know, to your to your point. In I think it was in Silencer, right? Where you're like, so the so the piece you had, I must confess, I'm glad to see it go. Like, who talks like that? Yeah, right. Yeah, sort of a same similar thing. Like, yep. who talks like like this is something that a 19 year old or 20 year old who writes a lot of poetry would <laughs> would write. <laughs> who happens to read, you know, 19, 19th century literature? Right. Or yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then this. 
then this con- this concluding moment, right? Right. Is suddenly snap to reality. Yeah. yeah. And 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 ironically, maybe not ironically, maybe this just makes perfect sense. Whatever else these last two lines are in this verse, they are a, a binary. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but they, it is it is the driest, starkest, yeah, least imagery laden language you can imagine. If you take take out anything that decorates it around and just and just say these two statements side by side, I need you. I don't. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Can't get clearer than that. Yeah. It, it's true. Yeah. It, it, and that's how we know this this happened at least in yeah. this narrative this happened yeah. the last thing i wanted to bring up is we we talked about this in the previous episode about the the wasted words being spoken and written mm-hmm. this note mm. this this kind of affirms those first couple lines of silencer could have been from her perspective they just weren't quotes because he's wasting time writing this silly over the top yeah. note yeah mhm I mean, I know I used to write this sort of stuff to people all the time. Same. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. oh I, I, I have very firm <laughs> memories, and I wish I had never said these sorts of things of, like, I'll always be there. Like, the, you know, the, like, doesn't matter that you broke my heart. Like, just come back. I'll, I'm waiting. So silly. Yeah. <laughs> you also get, you, you get this, you get this sense, like, you can almost imagine the narrator you know, thinking like, oh, this is going to work. Yeah. This is the one. Exactly. That's going to get her because she's going to be so taken with the genius of this, of this line. <laughs> yeah. And then exactly. it just, it's just, no, it's unequivocal. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I, that's part of why I brought up the metaphysical conceit earlier is because that's another pattern that we see like, that's how Aaron writes for the rest of their catalog. Yes. Yep. Most of his imagery is using this device of metaphysical conceit. And we see it so strongly in this, and Joel, as you pointed out in the next verse that we're about to read, mm-hmm. that is really clever. What a clever way to convey this message. And it didn't work. It was the one that worked the least. Like, it's yeah. finally the period. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's kind of an interesting sort of meta thing to to reflect on like the thing that we all as fans love so much about Aaron's writing right exactly is this thing that utterly fails to work the one person that he at this time at least really wanted it to work on yeah it doesn't yeah right he has so there's so many thousands of people who love his writing yeah who who love his skill yeah right and and the one person that he wants he, they don't yeah. All his clever <laughs> words on pages. Yes, yeah. Yes. It's <laughs> Oh yeah, I want to say there's something shifts on the words yes, I don't. Right. It's not only this very striking line, but the music takes a dramatic turn hugely. We've had a bunch of like like just thick heavy D minor chords and then every it's it, it, clears the palette. The words I don't are, are given starkly as they should be with, with nothing else around. <laughs> we get this riff that comes in, mm-hmm. which to me sounds about as little like music that ought to be in the last track of an album as anything possibly can. <laughs> this is like 
opening track, like let's like let's amp up the energy and like get this yeah. thing going. Yeah. Like there's something about it that feels very introductory, and also feels like mm. sort of s- simple and out of place at this sort of emotional high point or low point or whatever it is. It's like <laughs> let's just like let's just like jam for a while, guys. Like there's something. Yeah. It's yeah. jarring. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hugely. Yeah. But in the in a sense, where it goes with the three minutes and 21 seconds approximately of, of outro music that we get. Yep. Like this is like in gym class in elementary school, like the parachute day, like they're getting, they're unfurling the parachute <laughs> yeah. and like getting it ready for this like explosion of sound that we're going to hear at yeah. the end of it all. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. These, these notes here, it's just an outlining of a B flat minor triad mm. which is that entire long outro it's the same notes it, it they're, they're presented differently oh that's so cool but we've been in this d minor space up until this point whether you want to like link that to divine judgment or just his own sort of weight of guilt and and shame and whatever that line i don't snaps him out of whatever's going on in his own head and we're back again in some sense to this question at the beginning Mm. which is also pulling notes out of this out of this b flat minor key area so it's like let okay let's say for a moment even if before you know i was talking about reading this quotation from the mouth of the lord as being very sincere yeah uh and i'll still stand by that reading but right now, whatever kind of experience, whether it's all been in his head or whether it's been some real divine human interaction that's that's supposed to be represented here, the force of her words, I don't, completely disrupt that agenda of trying to understand how God fits into this picture for a moment. And he's back to this question of, okay, how do I step forward into a life that I can live that is somehow satisfyingly aesthetic and ethical at the same time? Yeah, it puts us right back on the heels of where we started the song. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. And it, it actually reminds me of, I'm not going back to any particular lyrics, other than just to say the juxtaposition of what really happened versus the unreliable narrator side of things. As we talk about this in the context of, of mental illness and, and how psyches work, Joel, you mentioned earlier... Um, what depression and anxiety can do to us with these sorts of mm-hmm. traumatic or, or uh, upsetting, at least, uh, moments. And sometimes that looks like what's called intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, like, you just might be inserting something that d- d- right. didn't happen or yeah. you're fabricating or you're extrapolating mm-hmm. from it. And I, I think we see that a lot. And these little musical gestures imply that almost more than the intrusive thoughts that happen in the lyrics. Like... These stark shifts is where, mm-hmm. ah, okay, now here we are back into something. Progress is happening. Onward progress. Yeah. Or so it seems. So, Joel, you want to? Well, so, but before we read the the lyrics, yeah. Stephen, yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot here, but could you (laughs) explain what happens like before, like going into the verse, this last verse? Like, isn't there's like a big. Yeah. 
because you have you have the walk down, but but then you have this big sort of. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, I can tell you exactly what's yeah. happening there. <laughs> yeah. That sound. Yeah. 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 This is. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the the reason why I bring it up is because it's it's such a it's just a really like stirring for me just a very stirring moment oh it because is. you go from the the palm muted guitar kind of walking down which is very simple <laughs> right <laughs> um into that little yep. riff that and it's just it's it just sounds so huge on the record yeah um yeah you know and especially once aaron comes in it's just like whoa like this is this feels like yeah now the end of the record <laughs> Yeah, yeah. A tempest is is forming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's an inversion of of the way that the first act, starting with A, moving into Gentleman into Be Still Child, happens. Mm. So so at the beginning of Gentleman. Mm-hmm. We have a, a tritone opening up to a perfect fifth. Fast forward to the beginning of Be Still Child. We have a tritone opening to a perfect fifth, mm-hmm. a minor third higher than that gesture before. So. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this transitional moment, after that kind of chunky stuff that happens after the words I don't, is a tritone opening to a perfect fifth. And then a minor third lower now, going the opposite direction mm. of that pair of songs earlier. And still landing solidly on, on a B flat. Mm. So, wow. to put it all together side by side, the two tracks earlier on the album. Yeah. And right here we get... So, it's hmm. this beautiful... Symmetrical musical gesture that that pulls together something that takes a longer span of time earlier and just compresses it into this one riff. Wow! And offsets it and reverses it. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it it is. It's like it's symphonic. It it does feel yeah. that way. <laughs> it's like an overture in reverse. Yeah, like it, yeah. it. Like we're hearing the musical overtones that we're supposed to get throughout the album, but at the end, mm-hmm. it, oh man, what an yep. incredible. Yeah. Mm. Oh, uh, one one other word about it is that if you go back and listen to the opening of the of the Cure for Pain, mm-hmm. the the clear note that you hear, which which seems like the only thing going on, is this is a solo line and a guitar playing. If you crank it up and listen really, really closely. Mm. That thing, that that tritone opening gesture is playing really, really soft underneath. So hmm. this is not the first time we've heard this music, and I don't know exactly what to make of it, but if the opening is sort of like him questioning himself or whatever, like somehow this sound is present, 
And after all this stuff unfolds and we get the words, I don't, and maybe that music after I don't is like just him pacing around trying to respond. Like, what do you, what do you, it's just this raw, like, what do you do with that? Yeah. There's nothing pretty about it. There's nothing expressive. It's just, it's just this hard hitting kind of build build. Yeah. And it's like, it's almost like this is the epiphany right here. Mm-hmm. And this sound that was buried beneath his question earlier now comes full force Mm. And and it's like something snaps and here it is. Like he's he's realized what he needed to. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Now I want to go listen to it cranked too loud for my eardrums. <laughs> yeah, you gotta turn it down before the rest of the song starts. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right. Let's get to these lyrics here. Yes. You'd only make the softest sound, like sugar pouring into tea. Darling, let yourself pour down and dissolve into the love who revealed himself there quietly to me. Jesus, have mercy on us. So the thing that to me is just absolutely brilliant about this is that you are fully expecting him to say, like sugar pouring into tea, darling, let yourself pour down and dissolve into me, right? Because that would... Yeah, yes. That would complete the rhyme. And actually, I mean, I know that for a long time, you know, uh, I, I had a false memory that that was what the line was, right? And then every time I listen to the album... Oh, yeah. for sure. It's not... That's not what it is. And I'm like, oh, wait. Oh, yeah. No, it's not that. It's... It's this, right? Mm-hmm. And the me comes later and in, and is not, right? It, it means something totally different, right? It's not. Right, right. It's not to, related to that right, phrase. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Who uh, Dissolve into the love who revealed himself there quietly to me. Oh, and I, I just absolutely love saying the love who revealed himself to me. Using the love as a stand-in for God or yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ is, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, oh my gosh, what it... Uh, what a powerful end to this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it is, uh, it's brilliant writing. It's just brilliant. It's just, no, I mean, yep. it's amazing. It just, from a poetic standpoint, it's one of the best things on the record, if not the best mm-hmm. moment, poetically speaking. It's, it's a good way to, to end. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. 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 Well, and so, let's, let's sit on, like sugar pouring into tea, darling, let yourself pour down for a minute because Joel, as you said, that's like a people remember that line. That that is a line oh, yeah. that yeah. is repeated and, and and means a lot to a lot of folks. And I know a lot of you got tattoos of that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Some of which are just so incredible. I've seen so many great tattoos on the Facebook uh fan page. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's the perfect example of the the oneness that we've talked about yeah. from the first mm-hmm. song episode uh, with Bullet to Binary, with Let Us Die, and our conversation about Rumi. Like, these two substances have become one. Science nerds, what do they call that kind of mixture? Is it a solution? Yeah, it's a solution, but it's... Because um, it's not a mixture, right? It's Yeah, I don't know. There's probably a better term for it than... 
either solution or mixture, and I'm just not remembering it. We're not science people, everybody. We are not. not We are not. It's like, no, but. But I do remember from the fifth grade that (laughs) if the tea is hot, you can pour more sugar into it and it will still dissolve and you'll have a super saturated solution. Yeah. That's, yep, there, that was the, that was it. Thank you. Yep. (laughs) But that cohesiveness is so incredible. Yeah. Mm. I, I want to pause for a moment, not on the meaning of it, which which I think you're getting at really beautifully, but the the literal experience. Imagine this for a second. Yeah. Of the sa- the sound mm. of sugar pouring into tea. I mean, if you imagine sugar pouring into a teacup, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. It's already a very soft, it's a grainy sound maybe, but it's a very, very quiet. There's not a hard edge to it at all. It's, it's you know, you can imagine, it's almost like running your hand over some sand. smooth sand or something. But then you soften the sound even more by putting this heated liquid into it where the moment that, that the sugar touches it, 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 just, it just dissolves instantly. There's no friction to be had. It's an incredibly delicate line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amidst all this tempest of what yeah. we're getting and the, yeah. where the song is going. So there's, to me, an interesting difference. I mean, there, there's a parallel between this stanza and the end of Silencer. There's a similar mm-hmm. image. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to grammatically, I just want to point out this difference. So yeah. Yeah. the end of Cure for Pain, he's saying you would only make the softest sound. Meaning if you were to make this choice, you would only make the softest sound, right? There's that softness yes. again, right? So you, there's this link to the end. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, at the end of Silencer, he says, she will stand before your throne, right? Yeah. Um, and and I, I think that that difference really matters in terms of sort of like the, the two separate opposed readings that Stephen and I had um, reactions that we had to the end of sure. Silencer in that here there there's room for choice for her, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. You would exactly. make the softest sound like like sugar pouring into to tea. He's imploring her, let yourself pour down and dissolve into the love, right? That's what I want for you because I care about you. That's what I want for you. If you choose that. Mm-hmm. This is what yeah. it will be. And that is, I think, a really important difference. It is. As opposed to the end of Silencer where you're saying you she will do this. Like she will stand that that future yeah. t- that future tense uh in, in the previous implies a finality. It implies the destiny that must happen. Yeah. Whereas this, it, you're absolutely right. That 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 apostrophe D really implies a lot of uh, consent and choice on her part, which is really cool. Yeah. Right. And then that last line, which, again, is just 
chill inducing oh my gosh yep. every time he says jesus have mercy on us it's just like oh wow oh, it's just and he, he he says it out of out of any cadence with the rest of the lyrics it, right just it's a true it. it's a true prayer and and i yes and to me the i feel like the reason behind it is he's just saying there's nothing left for me to do like just have mercy on us. Like I need mercy here. I yeah. I can't yeah. um, like th- there's nothing left to do. Like I, I'm truly giving it all up in a way that, that feels so much more genuine than the previous times that he has tried right in the previous tracks to yeah. relinquish himself right. to God. This feels like a moment where he is actually doing that. And and I think it it creates a sense of balance, not only against the track before it, how this concludes, uh, but against this entire song, against this entire record. Like there's mm. the line, Jesus have mercy on us. And it feels almost profane to call it a line, mm. right? As if this is something sort of artificially crafted as like a conclusion. Yeah. Back up. Hear my voice in your head and think of me kindly. Mm. If he's afraid of judgment and and what what the divine voice says is, is think think of me kindly. Mm. And after he he screams, let me be, and drives back into this judgmental D minor slog for a while. <laughs> Even if it takes her words saying, I don't, to shake him out of that. If you read this moment of return of this music as a kind of epiphany that something's clicked and it takes a moment to then like get into saying it and then think back again to how soft that music is at the very opening of this track. Mm-hmm. Go go on a limb with me here just for a minute. That if if we hear in the more prominent notes that the guitar plays at the opening of the song, his kind of self-talk, and, and yet there is God speaking to him through the softest possible notes. I mean, you really have to turn it up to hear them there. If now somehow, like, he's been stripped away by her words, I don't, now that voice that was trying to speak to him that he couldn't hear because it was so quiet comes out more prominently. And and what we end with is, is of course, this striking parallel of, of this conditional future where you see what he hopes for her, not what he declares has to be. Mm-hmm. It's a very soft image. Now, in the song before, we have all soft and small. You'll hear her call, you brought me here, now take me home. In the midst of whatever confidence he's trying to project there, she still, she comes across as soft and small and silencer. Here... Sugar pouring into tea is awfully soft and awfully small, but again, the meaning is totally transposed. I love that, Joel, so much. Mm, yeah. How much that you'd makes makes a difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then and then all of it, it's like all artifice is stripped away. And Jesus have mercy on us. Like he gets it. Yeah. That that he now is thinking of him kindly. 
Yeah. And even from a production standpoint, I I often picture (laughs) it's silly, um, almost like a cartoon version of Aaron being swallowed up by sand or or water or something and like stepping away from the microphone as he's recording this line Mm -hmm. and saying, Jesus, have mercy on us as he walks into the into oblivion as he as he dissolves into the void in a sense. And then we get that musically. And it's such an incredible moment. Yes. Such an absolutely Mm. beautiful moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm really excited right now to talk about the end of this track musically because it does it feels like a true sort of letting go into mystical experience like yeah you can imagine yeah uh you know the narrator aaron whoever you know swirling again right the that whirling dervish like yes um yeah just just letting yourself sort of go in this kind of just this the sway of the back and forth of those voices going you know from one note down to the next back and back and yeah, back yeah. um yeah, yeah yeah it's just and then there's a uh i think a triad that comes in that's like repeated over and over again which i is that the are those the notes from b minor it's b flat minor, b flat minor. it is yeah uh oh. yeah the the music at this point feels no need to resolve to to be minor yeah i i yeah i want to talk about the music at the end uh, appropriately maybe to the dissolving into mystical experience i actually don't have that much to say analytically about it mm. i i feel it more than more than i can tell you like what's happening you know under the hood yeah sure um i i, I don't want to overplay this because i think the line is so so delicate and so precious to land it with chapter and verse reference. But I do, I do think it's worth just saying for a moment, Jesus have mercy on us is reminiscent. It's not, it's not a quote, but it's reminiscent of this picture that, that Jesus himself and the gospel sets of two people. And, and one is thanking God that he's not like these sinners over here. And Jesus then casts that over and against a man who's, who's like, down on his knees in the corner, beating his breast, saying, you know, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Like that and mm-hmm. and he holds up the man who has no pretense of being thankful that he's so righteous, and the one who's just destitute as as being the one who actually has any semblance of righteousness. Right. And I don't I don't even know if this is thoughtfully or intentionally a reference to that. I just think I think that's such a striking image that is relevant to how me without you fits yeah. in the landscape of religious music. Oh, totally, <laughs> yeah, um, totally. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that parable that you just said is yeah. That's the entire story of this album, in, in a sense. Yeah. To have gone through these struggles makes the faith at the end that much more righteous. Yeah. And that much more. Uh, and again, I'm not a uh, a Christian minded person, but I get that. A hundred percent. Like that mm-hmm. is the faith. If I had this faith that I yeah. would want, yeah. um, which is to have gone through wanting it for the wrong reasons. You know, we learned that in pick your story, the uh, Christmas Carol or, uh, you know, any, any, yeah, not any fairy tale, but ma- you know, many sure. fictional stories. That's, that's like the true morality 
to yeah. come through it is, is to have well, let go of all of those selfish needs. Yeah. And if you take it back to the title of the song, I mean, yeah. we just came out of Silencer in which we have these po- possibly suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. that then are sort of bolstered and put a, a defense up in front of this very confident vision of, of yeah. what God is going to do. And I have another plan now takes on maybe a different shade of meaning. Right. That, mm. Or whatever his other plan was. Now, the actual solution is not to, to end his own life, and it's not to like step into this false confidence about what God will do, but it's just to experience the pain. And if there is a cure at all, it's only through that. And it's only through this, like, this experience of beating your breast and, and, and just casting yourself on the mercy of God because you have nothing else to offer. And I feel like I'm suddenly preaching, but like it's no, not at all. That feel that feels like the the sensible conclusion to the opening line and the title of this song. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the music at the end. Yeah, please. If I could just, I'll I'll do my time breakdown. Um, yeah, please do. So, opening notes to the final, the final phrase: "Jesus, have mercy on us." Jesus, have mercy on us. Is at about two minutes and nineteen, two minutes and twenty seconds. And then again, we get this outro music till five minutes and forty-one seconds. That's what three minutes and twenty, thereabouts. Yeah, I I don't know numerology enough to to tell you any significance of any of those numbers. More just to say, the amount of just musical ecstasy that we get <laughs> yeah. is longer than I think any of the songs in the A suite. I don't think any of them are over three minutes. No, they're short. They're really short. Yeah, they're all short. So, like, we are getting just more content right there. And yeah. That's significant because at face value, it feels like a repetition of the music of the same music over and over again, but yeah. it's not. It, it does move in some uh, it, yeah. it may be the same tones happening in some similar gestures, but it does move. You know, and it's also it's an extended instrumental section. Mm-hmm. We've had two of those on this album so far. They were A and B. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's not a separate track here called C. But it could function just as well in that fashion that now we move into this other sort of vortex instrumental space that's taking him mm-hmm. somewhere. This, this this music of transport on some spiritual plane. Right. And the sea is just implied. And, you know, if we want to take it down Kierkegaard's road, the alternative to either the aesthetic or the ethical life is, is the religious life, right? Mm-hmm. And the leap of faith. I mean, that's that's what the next book that Kierkegaard published was Fear and Trembling. Yeah. And I feel like that's where where Me Without You is going. It's where Aaron's sort of imagination is going in some respects, whatever callbacks there are to, to the mindset that we find on this album. Yeah. And so it's almost like this non-titled C track either can read as the introduction that comes right before Bullet to Binary on through Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt, or it's this transport music that takes us on into Catch for Us, the Foxes, and Beyond. And you can read it both ways. Yeah. And I think you should, in a sense, yeah. read it both ways. 
Yeah. Real quick, a little bit more numbers interest here. Please, uh, please. So yeah. the the total time of A and B together is about two minutes and twenty eight seconds. Uh-huh. So even those two songs to get those two tracks yeah. together is shorter than this yeah. C section. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, Steven, can you kind of break down some of the gestures that I know you don't have a lot analytically to say, but can you break down any of the gestures that we're getting? I can. The basic harmonic home of this entire lengthy outro is B flat minor, but it doesn't feel super minor. It doesn't feel like heavy and sad in the way that the D minor did before. And even in those early D minor sections, Get this like big heavy sound that's punctuated by by this an A that pulls you back down to D. A is the is the dominant of of D, and so it's this note that just signals like departure and return to land us on D again. Yeah. Okay. If you want to read anything about A being the thing that leads you to D, insert ruminations here. <laughs> but. <laughs> The only time it feels like the chord is kind of changing in all this stuff at the end is where we get a bass note that moves up to an F and then pulls us back down, but it never really leaves the the B flat minor. It's just it's just a big jam on this one chord with that dominant pitch kind of just giving it a sense of departure and return so the music has yeah. momentum to it. The voices that come in, this really lovely vocal sound that doesn't really come quite that way anywhere else in the album. We get some background vocals in other places, but we get these these two notes sung in harmony with each other. It's a it's a D flat down to B flat and an F natural down to D flat and it's it's just outlining Again, outlining a, a B flat minor triad. So I don't have anything magical to say about that, but it sounds so comforting. Exquisite. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Exquisite. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost the part of why it sounds so exquisite is how perfectly well it's all mixed together. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that's um there's almost times in this record that are like there's intentional harshness in the way the mix is yeah. happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like when you hear like some of it's like they just had whether it was Dan or Mike or or even Aaron singing just as like a, a backing vocal. Don't care about singing this too well. In this, yeah. it they they like probably did multiple takes to get like, yep, you sang the pitch correctly the whole time and like the harmony is perfect. Yeah, and yeah. it's just it's just so fantastically done top to bottom in this section that it does feel like a departure from yeah. from where we have been, which is especially poignant with the rough and readiness of the secret track, which we're not going there quite yet, but um mm-hmm. Yeah. That feels yeah. very much like they did it in one take in a beautiful yeah. way. Like, yeah. uh, yeah. that's yeah. that's exquisite in its own way. Yeah. One one different way that you could read this because because even though the pitches all line up and, and if you were to write it on a staff, it would look like it's all in B flat minor. If you want to think about it as being in as in being D flat major, 
mm-hmm. and then alternating with B flat minor. Mm-hmm. Like there's not a lot of prominent A's up in the top A flats. I mean, which would which would put it in this D flat major key. But I th- but it it almost sounds like it it belongs in a major key more than in a minor key at the end. Mm-hmm. It does and, and it's back and forth and whatever. All I'd say about that is that D flat. If we want to think of it in D flat major, is just unique to this moment. There's nowhere else in the album that that note is really emphasized or that that key is a place that they land. And so there's something nice about it actually being just this breath of fresh air that's something totally new that we're hearing that we've not been prepped for with other sounds earlier on. Yeah. Also, in in the big sweep, thinking about this being cyclical, it also maybe adds to the case that that this isn't the end because the album's called A to B Life and we end in either B flat or D flat, however you want to read it. It 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 kind of make makes an argument for like, okay, well let's cycle this thing back around until we get to B being the actual conclusion after A. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and it and it's okay to read multiple endings on this album. I it's like even if you don't do any analysis, it sounds like it ends a handful of times. We've already talked <laughs> about that. So I think it's fine to trust in this as the, as the true ending versus the end of everything is beautiful and nothing hurt. And if we read it like we've been talking where the opening of the album is in, playing in real time and this is now a recollection continuing in real time in a way, but also going back and looking. Right. It's almost like he gets to the end of his recollections, maybe with the word I don't. I don't. Take that as the narrative, that that's the end of his memory. Mm. And that snap out of it is where we stop getting his recollections and we snap back into real time again. Uh, And so this really is the ending. That feels really good, (laughs) just thinking of it that way, because Mm. of how beautifully poignant the final verse of Cure for Pain is, how all of the potentially ugly ways that he has talked about what God can do, the vengeful God that we get throughout a lot of early Bible stories, the the, mm-hmm. the, the God of punishment and and, and, yeah. and jealousy. Nope, that's not what we're seeing at all here. Yeah. Mm. The, the the soft embrace of dissolving. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder too if there's something. I mean, just another <laughs> to throw out another possibility here. The way that the song <laughs> sort of just like falls apart at the end. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, yes, it feels, you know, on one level, it feels like uh, it's it's ending in some ways. But then, you know, the way that it actually does end feels like it's perhaps like there's perhaps something more. Right. It's like, um, yeah. like it doesn't yeah. actually end. Um, I, I just want to. I also just mentioned yeah. the fantastic post-rock sound of the outro that I mm-hmm. yep. think becomes more and more prominent in Me Without You's sound overall. Yes. There are lots of moments on this record where you hear high-pitch reverby guitars being strummed really fast and, you know, kind of signature post-rock sounds, but this... Uh, outro really um yeah it just it 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 nails a post rock sound that is i think uniquely 
me without you. Yes. That whatever notes the that vocal is like there, there's like there's a feeling that's evoked in this outro that I can't quite put words to that feels very them, right? Um, it does. And 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 especially with regard to these uh, the kind of post rock elements that they yeah um, start incorporating more and more in the later records. Yeah, I mean it. It feels in a sense. This sounds uh, diminutive, but uh, like this is like me without yous finding their explosions in the sky crescendo. Like explosions in the sky almost does it like it's almost cliche with them how much they get to this beautiful crescendo, this 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 ascent or descent into just like like you said, high reverby guitars with like yeah. really fast picking and and where it all takes you and then it. But then it dissolves into this like creaking and and weird like swells into nothingness. It, it, oh, those last couple seconds, like I, I remember being like, okay, that's where the song ends. Oh, nope, there's still notes happening. Mm-hmm. They just don't fit into any, like we've lost all key. We've lost all yeah. semblance of, of rhythm or time. Yeah. The, um, the high reverby fast pit guitars they're they're doing this rising gesture that sounds like it's reaching up and up and up yep. even while the voices are pulling it down it's the same kind of thing that happens in the a track and the b track where yeah. there's these outward moving gestures that are pulling up and down at the same time whereas in those the the lower voice the bass is pulling it down towards b where it sounds like the upper voice is pulling it up towards a and they're they're opposed to each other in this one it it kind of sounds more unified like it's not it's not opposed, even though the music is moving in two directions, which I find really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's more like a breath instead of, of being pulled apart. It's yeah. the lungs filling and, and yeah. in, a, in a way. Well, and in, in A and B, the, although we consistently talk about them as instrumentals, there is a voice present. Yeah. Probably, yeah. probably Dan's voice. May, maybe you can read it as a sort of a female character. Maybe you could read it as the voice of God, I don't know. It's saying something. I think it sounds like the words you know. If you have a different reading of what the words are, that's fine. But here, there is 100% not a text. Yeah. It is, it is just this beautiful sound of these voices moving together in harmony with each other, yeah. rather than a single voice calling out some sort of instructions or, or, or rebuke or whatever you want to make, if it is the words you know. (sighs) The thing that comes to mind, not to make this sort of dumb at such a a high-spirited moment, but have you ever tried to imagine what the Beach Boys sounded like in the studio at the end of any of their songs? Hmm. I mean, the Beach Boys are sort of famous for not really ending songs. They've just... Like everything was a they fade out. Everything, yeah. Mm, and yeah. and whether it was the wrecking crew, you know, or whoever was in the studio with them, like they had to have some instructions for what to play. And it's probably like, okay, vamp on this thing for a while and then eventually we'll cut the tape. Yeah. But every yeah. one of those songs in real time had an ending. <laughs> and I'm guessing most of the endings were probably not clean because they didn't need to be. Why can't you fade them? Let's try the fade on God only knows. What I'd be without 
God only knows what I'd be without And so we get an interesting sort of musical dissolve at the end of this track. Yeah. That we didn't get earlier whenever it ends in B flat. We know who our enemies are. Where it fades out and it comes yes. back in. Yeah. Yes. We know who our enemies yes. are. Yeah. Yeah. The end of We Know Who Our Enemies Are is in B flat. It fades out a la Helter Skelter. <laughs> and that B flat isn't allowed to be the ending. Whatever kind of compromise he was trying to get there, it, it they try yes. to fade out. The music does not allow him to stop. And yet somehow here, we also end in B-flat. And yet the band is just allowed to keep playing. The fade out never comes. And we actually hear the real natural ending of what happens as the music just kind of yeah. comes to yeah. a conclusion. That's right. Wow. wow. So, should we talk about the the secret track? Yeah. Which is technically yeah. part of the final track. I mean, I don't think that there's... Obviously, we already talked about these lyrics in the I Never Said That I Was Brave episode itself. Yeah. I do think that it's worth talking about them again simply insofar as the completely different tone that they are given... In this version, yep. where I think the first few times I heard it, I did not realize that this was an acoustic version of a song that was on the record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I just wasn't paying that close of attention to it. And it, it took a few listens, I think, for me to realize like, oh, wait, this is the lyrics to this other song. Wow. Right. This is a very different vibe. Very different. <laughs> Yeah. Or, and, you know, it it felt, for me, I had a similar experience the first few times, first couple dozen times, honestly, of like, oh, they're just recycling lyrics, which often is done in albums Mm -hmm. as it's done in in operas and Mm -hmm. and, and symphonies with gestures being recycled as well. Like, my stomach swears that there's comfort there and the warmth of the blankets of your bed. Like, oh yeah, that, those are just images that I'm remembering. Oh wait, no, mm-hmm. this is actually the same song yeah. shuffling around some of the stuff, which is really great. Actually creating choruses, you know, we, we get true repeated, the same words being used, choruses. We only have that a handful of other times mm-hmm. on the album. And just the way it's delivered, Dan's singing and Dang it, whoever wrote the Wikipedia page for saying it's Mike, this is not Mike singing. <laughs> it's it's Dan, the former uh, bassist. Um, yeah, it. what a beautiful, raw, you know, it, it's like a, like a neutral milk hotel mm-hmm. song in which, like, there's a sweetness and a rawness to it and, and, and an honesty, and instead of waiting for him to sing it perfectly, they just got what they got the take they got, and... Here it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have, I have a question to ask two ways about how you guys hear this. In terms of 
actual real world production in the studio. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how you imagine this this hidden track came to be. And the second question is, in terms of including it on the album, what does it mean? Yeah. My, I mean, how did it come to be? I, I'm sure that there's a story somewhere. I'm trying to recall, because I, I, I think I mentioned in the very first episode when we were kind of introducing our you know relationship to the band and, and everything, uh, I think it was in that episode that I mentioned that I saw Dan play this live. Yeah. Yeah. Which was like a total surprise. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it was happening. And yeah, he just he just came out with one acoustic guitar. It sounds like there's two guitars on the recording to me. Yeah, it's double tracked. Um, yeah. yeah, okay. My guess is that Dan just came up with this. The little lick that he's playing sounds like something that you come up with just kind of messing around. Like it doesn't sound like yeah. to me like a polished full complete idea Mm -hmm. it's it's in drop d is what it sounds like to me or some some Mm -hmm. kind of alternate tuning where uh kind of like really resonant open strings yeah exactly and so it sounds like he was just messing around with an open tuning and came up with this little lick and yeah who knows i i mean at some point I decided to uh, try singing these lyrics over it. I don't know. Um, But that's kind of what it sounds like to me. It's just like, here's a lick that I came up with and, oh, wow, like these lyrics fit over this in, in this way. Um, But yeah, it doesn't sound like a polished guitar, a song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. I do. Yeah. The, you know, the cadence of how he sings it is similar to how, is specifically the intro, mm-hmm. is similar to how Aaron delivers yeah. it. Obviously, Aaron is yell-talking at us, onward progress or so it seems, but there, there's a similarity there, at least in, in the timing of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost identical in terms of the, the speech rhythm. Right. right. like the meaning on the album i think it's it's not insignificant that this is the last song in the a section Mm -hmm. the song that leads into what we've just spent you know the past two episodes talking about so there's something there specifically on that outro section because we spent a lot of time talking about those that last big chunk of text and they took that and turned it into this awesome you know i'll just read the outro from one voice's perspective and then the other voice's perspective no use in saying how i'm sorry so i'm trying not to speak i'll sing in silence as i lay beside you with my face against your cheek and then alternatively with each of those lines if you'd unlatch the window if you'd let me if you'd give me another if you'd forgive the pain if you'd unlatch the window, if you'd let me lay there on your floor. Mm. And what a creative way to rehash these lyrics. Yeah. And the the different tone of it, it just, 
it actually does something pretty similar to what we were talking about earlier with the end of Silencer compared to the end of Cure for Pain, mm-hmm. where we're seeing a recapitulation of what could be happening mm-hmm. turned from a potentially ugly to a very clearly beautiful uh, solution. I had the exact same thought yeah. about that. I swear, God, that's so crazy. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, yeah. I, it, it does. I think that that's definitely a very good reading of this song. Like, there was this kind of cathartic moment in Cure for Pain, a mystical yeah. moment. I mean, I, 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 I mean, definitely the end of that, that outro is a kind of mystical divine yeah. experience. Yeah. And out of that experience, the, the narrator, right. In a, a new voice, right. Has gained some kind of new insight into this thing that he, as, as you just said, Nick, right. That he had imagined one certain way and it was ugly. And now, reimagining it with the same words mm-hmm. and it's something that's made new through this experience and remember this is the song that narratively tells at least the remembering of the potentially sinful moment between the two the yes, shame that yes. he's feeling right. mm-hmm. whatever that was whether it was sexual or implied like lust at least and now it's a beautiful moment. Now it's yeah. a, now it's a mm-hmm. moment of connection between the two of them, and it's so tender. Yeah, the tenderness of it. Yeah, and the fact that all of this comes after the last words that we heard were uh, "Jesus, have mercy on us." It's just, mm. ha, huh. <laughs> like yeah. yeah. Now you are giving yourself the grace and the mercy that you were asking for, mm. and yeah. that's just yeah. such a beautiful. Yeah, I think it's musically significant. A couple of things that this secret track reworking of I Never Said That I Was Brave uh, is in the key of E major. Hmm. It's an easy key to kind of start with on the guitar. Actually, I, I, I shouldn't say that um, <laughs> to, to play a, a B chord for all of you yeah. guitar yeah. players, either <laughs> old or new out there. <laughs> take take some work yeah. to get there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I'm like, um, like but but because of the lowest and the highest string of guitar are E's, it, it's got this natural resonance that both the low and the high of it ring through when you play this home mm-hmm. home chord. There's no music anywhere on the album that's in the key of E. So this is again a novel. It's it's whatever other territory has been explored, we've moved into this novel sound of the end of the last proper song into a different new novel sound. But this different new novel sound is a tritone away from where we ended. <laughs> That's B flat. That's E. <laughs> wow. I don't, and I don't mean to introduce more dissonance at this point, only to say that somehow we have these these two paired beautiful moments that are in some sense polar opposites, but mm. because we have this long gap of silence, we don't have that sense of the clash between the two. Mm. I also think it's significant that in Dan's voice... In a couple places, you know, it seems implied that that his vocal presence on the album is is sort of feminized, that it represents this female character that's being sung about and to. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you imagine that it's her singing now at the end, mm. these words that we've already heard, his version of 
angsty mm-hmm. and, and ashamed and whatever else you want to put with it, you can think of it in, in at least a couple ways. So one is, back this up and imagine now we've, we've come to the end of some polished, produced film that we've just watched. <laughs> and, and there's a script and there's lighting and there's costumes and what, we've had this story presented to us. And at the end, you know, in, as the credits start to roll, we see something about ba- based on real life events or something. Oh, I didn't know that was a true story. I just thought it was interesting. And then somewhere halfway through the credit sequence, like some old, you know, either depending on the era of it, like old, like eight millimeter home video footage or like somebody's iPhone right. pulls up and you wait, like that's the real people that this story yeah. was about. Yeah. All of a sudden you see them unvarnished by the artifice of storytelling and and so you get her now singing these words. Mm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. In the moment of the relationship and you realize how soft and tender the relationship actually was. Whatever his feeling about it was after the fact as he's reflecting like in the moment it actually wasn't like that at all. That's so beautiful. <laughs> oh my god. It's really incredible. Well, and it takes me back to something Joel said earlier about what depression and anxiety do to us and it's like Oh, my God. When we see it through her lens. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It wasn't perfect, but it was so much more lovely and tender and and full of love. Yeah. Yeah. Even a line like, my stomach's always been a liar. I'll believe it's lies again. If you imagine that being spoken tenderly to somebody, it doesn't have the same implications (laughs) at all. Yeah. Right. And and those... Two lines are some of my favorite, the way that Dan sings them. Um, I don't know what it is about that, the melody of that. And, and it kind of repeats. A, it's very similar when he's when he sings come over, come over to, mm-hmm. um, you know, so. But but yeah, there's something about it that, um, yeah, it just does not carry the same connotation at all yeah as as it does in in the uh original recording yeah no it i mean it almost feels like the exact opposite point of what the original song does yeah yeah in fact it's like my stomach's always been a liar lying that i should feel uncomfortable right now and i'll believe it's lies again that i should continue to feel uncomfortable no it's okay Mm-hmm. That you feel this love and this embrace of yeah. this moment. The fact of, of E major, besides just being something novel and different and, and somehow unproblematically a tritone away from the last music that we heard because of this long gap of silence, this is an E major chord. This is an A major chord. Mm. The whole album has been these little wispy tendencies towards a major that never are able to resolve there in fact the entire first section of four tracks as i've talked about this andalusian cadence if that cycle were to be allowed to complete which it doesn't what we get is (laughs) that resolves up to b but the way it naturally feels like it's going that's an E major right there. Mm. Oh, wow. that's awesome. And if it would have been allowed to go there, I mean, you could say that that endless loop is just going to go back to the A minor again, which is what it does in most songs that, that end that way. Um, 
there's this funny thing that that was sort of a trope in the in the Baroque period, not at this late hour for all of you listening, you know, for the last however many episodes we've done that we need to bring the Baroque period back into this. But there's this thing called a Picardy third that no matter how dark and stormy any of the emotional landscape of music in the the 17th and early 18th century was a lot of music ended even if it's been the whole time it would actually end Mm. (laughs) on the major version of the minor chord we've been hearing all throughout and for reasons that that are not necessarily germane to us now, but there's a precedent for this kind of thing. You hang out in this minor key territory the whole time, and then like the last thing you hear is a major resolution that you weren't expecting. <laughs> so, so I think it's perfectly fine to imagine that this E major here, somehow the, the allowance of her voice to come through and for the relationship to be seen in this non-judgmental, tender sort of light is the answer to the question of whether it's actually possible to resolve to some happy version of mm. this aesthetic existence, which brings us yeah. all the way back, as I've reiterated a bunch of times, to to this Eden image of living prior to the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, to make this as vastly expansive as I possibly can <laughs> for something that might have just been a throwaway studio experiment on an off day and Dan was just messing around, if we can imagine right now that we have both the possibility of an untrammeled life of happy aesthetic existence prior to eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At the other end of at least the biblical narrative, we can imagine the ending, this sort of mystical dissolving experience that interestingly ends with a with an ascending sound. Like, have you noticed that about the ending of, of the actual proper yeah. song? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the lead guitar over that continues to rush up and up and up. And and, and this is one of the things when I first when I first started to realize that I thought that there was some some kind of a structural narrative going on. And I had this idea about about the divine comedy, about Dante moving through these different phases. I even had this sort of working idea. Okay, well, like the first four tracks of this album are like the Inferno. And then the middle section that's labeled A is like purgatory. And then B is yeah. somehow like heaven. And then, and this was the sound that actually made me start to think in those terms was just that ascending little figure at the end. I mean, at the end of the Divine Comedy, after, you know, Virgil's already been dropped off at the beginning of the third book, Beatrice has been leading Dante all the way through, ascending closer and closer to the throne of God. And then whether you think of it as like the only possible ending or a literary cop-out or whatever, at the end, Dante basically says, like, the things that I finally encountered are too great to put into words. I cannot describe to you what, what I found. And we get this final ascent. So after this mystical experience of these three and a half or so minutes of music, we get this ascending figure, and then we get silence. So <laughs> to imagine in a, in a sort of eschatology of an interim state of actual death. I mean, there's been plenty of death imagery on this album, but imagine this mystical experience that we hear somehow dissolves into actual literal physical death. And there's just nothing. You're just just dead, silent for a very long time. Five five minutes of silence on an album feels like an eternity. (laughs) I mean, this is like this funny... Like, this album was released on CD. Like, if it had come out 
10 years later, there's no way this track would have been put on the way that it is with yeah, all the no. silence on Spotify. That's right. But because of the, of the technology that was that was available, we have this long silence. But also, if you think of it as the silence of the grave, mm. that after enough time has passed, after the last thing said being, Jesus, have mercy on us, you know, somehow even this line about her standing before the throne, in that sense, by herself, maybe we can redeem that line for a moment and see that somehow on Judgment Day, the footage that we're seeing played back of the two of them together is actually what like what he's being shown. Mm. Yeah. And that's what we get here at the end of the album. Mm. Man. Wow. Yeah. And that, and that kind of, Oh my gosh. That works very well. I feel like as the track being the secret track and, and also being this kind of like, it's almost like uh to kind of mash up Christianity with some Indian spiritual traditions it's like yeah this is moksha right this is liberation yeah in a way right because because this mm. moment is outside of the cycle right yeah yes. the 12 tracks minus the the secret track are him cycling through this great this moment of great suffering in his life right mm -hmm. and yeah the release is this other moment that we've, Stephen, that you described in such great, awesome detail, musically, how it's different and all that, like, it's different. It's outside of this, mm -hmm. yeah, this cycle of suffering in a way. Yeah, I really, I, I like that uh, because that, mm -hmm. man, mm -hmm. how did we do this, you guys? We, I feel like we, we like tied up everything in such a neat bow it, I, this feels like the beginning of a phd thesis <laughs> like on this freaking album oh my gosh and the last thing i wanted to say was just I, we've talked a lot about intimacy throughout this entire journey and the last line on the album is against your cheek Like we get it one more time. We just get one more. But again, it's with this refrain, uh, the reframing rather of of loveliness and, and, and tenderness, not like poison on your tongue, <laughs> falling down your cheek uh, from bullet to binary. Yeah. 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 So I love that it's outside of it. It, it is outside of the cycle. And yeah. Oh my gosh. And if you, you know, if you want to do this experiment and you have all the time in the world on your hands to sit there and listen to this album start to finish, and then as soon as you get to the end of the last song proper, go ahead and hit start again on Bullet to Binary, listen through it again, feel that experience of it cycling around itself, and then the second time, just wait and let it happen. You might approximate something like what's possible to imagine this, that it can be both cyclical and linear at the same time. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for listening in for this extensive discussion of The Cure for Pain and for coming along with us for the ride this entire first season of Us Without Them. While this was the last song on the album, we do have one more episode that's going to drop a week from today 
on Saturday, June 18th, which is the 20th anniversary of the release of A to B Life. In that, we're going to reflect on our experience going through this process in such detail. We're going to share some of your reflections that you all have shared with us over the course of this season. And we're going to anticipate what's coming in season two with Catch Trust the Foxes. So catch us next week for one more wrap up on season one of Us Without Them. Thanks again.